Section 6 of 93 by Victor Hugo, translated by Aline Delano. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 1, Book 2, Chapter 5, Vis et Vir. The cannon was rolling to and fro on the deck. It might have been called the living chariot of the apocalypse. A dim wavering of lights and shadows was added to this spectacle by the marine lantern swinging under the deck. The outlines of the cannon were indistinguishable, by reason of the rapidity of its motion. Sometimes it looked black when the light shone upon it, then again it would cast pale, glimmering reflections in the darkness. It was still pursuing its work of destruction. It had already shattered four other pieces, and made two breaches in the ship's side, fortunately above the water line, but which would leak in case of rough weather. It rushed frantically against the timbers. The stout riders resisted, Curved timbers have great strength, but one could hear them crack under this tremendous assault brought to bear simultaneously on every side, with a certain omnipresence truly appalling. A bullet shaken in a bottle could not produce sharper or more rapid sounds. The four wheels were passing and repassing over the dead bodies, cutting and tearing them to pieces, and the five corpses had become five trunks rolling hither and thither. The heads seemed to cry out. Streams of blood flowed over the deck, following the motion of the ship. The ceiling, damaged in several places, had begun to give way. The whole ship was filled with a dreadful tumult. The captain, who had rapidly recovered his self-possession, had given orders to throw down the hatchway all that could abate the rage and check the mad onslaught of this infuriated gun. Mattresses, hammocks, spare sails, coils of rope, the bags of the crew, and bales of false assignats, with which the corvette was laden that infamous stratagem of English origin being considered a fair trick in war. But what availed these rags? No one dared to go down to arrange them, and in a few moments they were reduced to lint. There was just sea enough to render this accident as complete as possible. A tempest would have been welcome. It might have upset the cannon, and with its four wheels once in the air, it could easily have been mastered. Meanwhile the havoc increased. There were even incisions and fractures in the masts that stood like pillars grounded firmly in the keel and piercing the several decks of the vessel. The mizzenmast was split, and even the mainmast was damaged by the convulsive blows of the cannon. The destruction of the battery still went on. Ten out of the thirty pieces were useless. The fractures in the side increased, and the corvette began to leak. The old passenger, who had descended to the gun deck, looked like one carved in stone as he stood motionless at the foot of the stairs and glanced sternly over the devastation. It would have been impossible to move a step upon the deck. Each bound of the liberated carronade seemed to threaten the destruction of the ship, but a few moments longer and shipwreck would be inevitable. They must either overcome this calamity or perish. Some decisive action must be taken, but what? What a combatant was this carronade! Here was this mad creature to be arrested, this flash of lightning to be seized, this thunderbolt to be crushed. Boisbertelot said to Vieville, Do you believe in God, Chevalier? Yes and no. Sometimes I do, replied La Vieville. In a tempest. Yes, and in moments like these. Truly God alone can save us, said Boisbertelot. All were silent leaving the carronade to its horrible uproar. The waves beating the ship from without answered the blows of the cannon within, very much like a couple of hammers striking in turn. Suddenly, in the midst of this inaccessible circus, 
where the escaped cannon was tossing from side to side, a man appeared, grasping an iron bar. It was the author of the catastrophe, the chief gunner, whose criminal negligence had caused the accident, the captain of the gun. Having brought about the evil, his intention was to repair it. Holding a handspike in one hand, and in the other a tiller rope with the slip-noose in it, he had jumped through the hatchway to the deck below. Then began a terrible struggle, a titanic spectacle, a combat between cannon and cannoneer, a contest between mind and matter, a duel between man and the inanimate. The man stood in one corner in an attitude of expectancy, leaning on the rider and holding in his hand the bar and the rope. Calm, livid, and tragic, he stood firmly on his legs that were like two pillars of steel. He was waiting for the cannon to approach him. The gunner knew his piece, and he felt as though it must know him. They had lived together a long time. How often had he put his hand in its mouth? It was his domestic monster. He began to talk to it as he would to a dog. Come, said he. Possibly he loved it. He seemed to wish for its coming, and yet its approach meant sure destruction for him. How to avoid being crushed was the question. All looked on in terror. Not a breath was drawn freely, except perhaps by the old man, who remained on the gun deck gazing sternly on the two combatants. He himself was in danger of being crushed by the piece. Still he did not move. Beneath them the blind sea had command of the battle. When, in the act of accepting this awful hand-to-hand -hand struggle, the gunner approached to challenge the cannon, it happened that the surging sea held the gun motionless for an instant, as though stupefied. "'Come on,' said the man. It seemed to listen. Suddenly it leaped towards him. The man dodged. Then the struggle began, a contest unheard of, the fragile wrestling with the invulnerable, the human warrior attacking the brazen beast, blind force on the one side, soul on the other. All this was in the shadow. It was like an indistinct vision of a miracle. A soul. Strangely enough, it seemed as if a soul existed within the cannon, but one consumed with hate and rage. The blind thing seemed to have eyes. It appeared as though the monster were watching the man. There was, or at least one might have supposed it, cunning in this mass. It also chose its opportunity. It was as though a gigantic insect of iron was endowed with the will of a demon. Now and then this colossal grasshopper would strike the low ceiling of the gun deck, then falling back on its four wheels like a tiger on all fours rush upon the man. He, supple, agile, adroit, writhed like a serpent before these lightning movements. He avoided encounters, but the blows from which he escaped fell with destructive force upon the vessel. A piece of broken chain remained attached to the carronade. This bit of chain had twisted in some incomprehensible way around the breech button. One end of the chain was fastened to the gun carriage. The other end thrashed wildly around, aggravating the danger with every bound of the cannon. The screw held it as in a clenched hand, and this chain, multiplying the strokes of the battering ram by those of the thong, made a terrible whirlwind around the gun, a lash of iron and a fist of brass. This chain complicated the combat. Despite all this, the man fought. He even attacked the cannon at times, crawling along by the side of the ship and clutching his handspike and the rope. The cannon seemed to understand his movements and fled as though suspecting a trap. The man, nothing daunted, pursued his chase. Such a struggle must necessarily be brief. Suddenly the cannon seemed to say to itself, 
Now then there must be an end to this. And it stopped. A crisis was felt to be at hand. The cannon, as if in suspense, seemed to meditate. Or, for to all intents and purposes it was a living creature, it really did meditate, some furious design. All at once it rushed on the gunner, who sprang aside with a laugh, crying out, Try it again! as the cannon passed him. The gun in its fury smashed one of the larboard carronades. Then, by the invisible sling in which it seemed to be held, it was thrown to the starboard, towards the man who escaped. Three carronades were crushed by its onslaught. Then, as though blind and beside itself, it turned from the man and rolled from stern to stem, splintering the latter, and causing a breach in the walls of the prow. The gunner took refuge at the foot of the ladder, a short distance from the old man who stood watching. He held his handspike in readiness. The cannon seemed aware of it, and without taking the trouble to turn it rushed backward on the man, as swift as the blow of an axe. The gunner, if driven up against the side of the ship, would be lost. One cry arose from the crew. The old passenger, who until this moment had stood motionless, sprang forward more swiftly than all those mad whirls. He had seized a bale of the false assignats, and at the risk of being crushed succeeded in throwing it between the wheels of the carronade. This decisive and perilous maneuver could not have been executed with more precision and adroitness by an adept in all the exercises given in the work of Duracell's Manual of Naval Gunnery. The bale had the effect of a plug. A pebble may block a log. A branch sometimes changes the course of an avalanche. The carronade stumbled, and the gunner, availing himself of the perilous opportunity, thrust his iron bar between the spokes of the back wheels. Pitching forward, the cannon stopped and the man, using his bar for a lever, rocked it backward and forward. The heavy mass upset, with the resonant sound of a bell that crashes in its fall. The man, reeking with perspiration, threw himself upon it, and passed the slip-noose of the tiller rope around the neck of the defeated monster. The combat was ended. The man had conquered. The ant had overcome the mastodon. The pygmy had imprisoned the thunderbolt. The soldiers and sailors applauded, the crew rushed forward with chains and cables, and in an instant the cannon was secured. Saluting the passenger, the gunner exclaimed, Sir, you have saved my life. The old man had resumed his impassable attitude, and made no reply. End of section 6